Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. By listening, you are becoming a part of our River Talks community. We're so excited to have you. River Talks are recorded live in Nashville, Tennessee at the Cumberland River Compact's River Center. Today we are excited to host Dr. Martin Knoll from University of South in Sewanee, Tennessee, who will be speaking about his recent study on microplastics in the Tennessee River. In 2017, Dr. Knoll was the project director for the Tennis Swim, the most ambitious analysis of water quality in the Tennessee River ever conducted. It included surprising findings about the levels of microplastics in our water. The Cumberland River Compact's Clean Streams Initiative focuses on the issue of litter in our waterways through community-led stream stewardship, large cleanups, and education on litter prevention. Since 2017, we've removed over 3,000 bags of trash at about 79,000 pounds of litter from our waterways. At our cleanups, we're always talking about the importance of removing this large trash so it doesn't become microplastic pollution that is harder to remove. We hope you enjoy hearing from Martin Knoll on River Talks. Specifically, I'm gonna talk about uh, a project we did two years ago where we called the Tennessee Web. So, just about two years ago, something really remarkable took place. Dr. Andrea Spot, who's a professor of chemistry at the University of Hortwang in the Black Forest of Germany, swam the entire 652 mile length of the Tennessee River. He did it in only 34 days, thereby setting a new world record for swimming that river. But the real reason for the Tennessee Swim Project was not to set a record in swimming the river, but to really raise awareness about water quality issues and microplastics amongst the approximately 5 million people that live in the Tennessee River watershed. So to that end, as Dr. Fodd was swimming every day down the river, we went with him in a boat and collected water samples that we had analyzed and we could detect uh, up to over 600 different chemicals that were present in the water. So this is really uh, an unprecedented look at the quality of water in the Tennessee River. I was the project director for the Tennis Swim, which meant I was in charge of all the finances, uh, schedule, and the sampling program. So, just to review a little bit, uh, the Tennessee River, of course, is one of the major rivers in North America here, flows into the Ohio, and this is a nice view of the river uh, downstream from Chattanooga to the Tennessee River Gorge. Now, this is the Rhine River in Germany. Northern Europe, why am I showing you this slide? Uh, because back in 2014, Dr. Fah also swam the Rhine River in its entirety, so the world record for that, but he carried on an identical sampling program uh, to what we did in Tennessee. So this gives us the unique ability to compare water quality between two of the great rivers of the world. And the Rhine begins here in the Swiss Alps and it makes its way down to the North Sea. Let's take a closer look at both of these river systems just to compare them a little bit. Uh, so on the left is the Tennessee River, and it's got its official start just above Knoxville at the confluence of the Holston and the French Broad Rivers right there. It makes its way down through Tennessee, through Chattanooga, goes through northern Alabama, catches the corner of Mississippi, then makes its way back north before going into Kentucky and enters into the Ohio River uh, close to Paducah. The Tennessee River watershed is shown here in this darker shade of pink green. Here's the Rhine River, and this watershed is shown in these shades of tan and green here. So the Rhine begins in the Swiss Alps up at Lake Toma, and it works its way down 
through Germany and France, and then through the Netherlands and into the North Sea. The two rivers are really uh, tailor-made for comparison because they're pretty similar. They're pretty similar. Uh, they have a similar length. You see the length here runs a little bit longer. Uh, they have a similar discharge. That's the amount of water that's hanging out uh, into uh, the Ohio or North Sea. The big difference, though, as you can see, has to do with the number of inhabitants of each of the watersheds. As I said, the Tennessee River watershed is just about 5 million people. The Rhine River watershed has got 10 times as many people that are about 50 million. So based on that alone, you would expect some significant differences in water quality between the two rivers, perhaps. So on July 27th, uh, two years ago, the swim began just upstream from Knoxville at the Ions Nature Center. A lot of you probably know this place and have been there. And you know, we could have uh, just taken a boat down the Tennessee River, collected samples, run the analyses, written an academic paper, and let it go with that. But the public probably would never have heard about that. So the swimming part that Dr. Croft did was really a vehicle to get people interested in the science that we were doing. Okay, and that's the purpose behind swimming this. Uh, to get as many people interested as we possibly can. Now, academics like me are notoriously bad at uh, speaking to the public, uh, getting connections with the public. Uh, we're not good at that. So, happily, we were able to use uh, the PR power of the Tennessee Aquarium and uh, the Tennessee Measure Conservancy to uh, get hooked up with, with the media. We have to have the media uh, to get the word out to the public. So. Uh, when we started on July 27th, the media was there uh, in force, and, and that was a good way to start. So we tried to maintain media contact throughout the entirety of the swim. So the first thing we noticed when we got in the river was, uh, is it a river or is it a lake, one giant lake? And you may know the Tennessee River is actually dammed up uh, by nine different uh, dams. And so it's rare to, to experience any significant current when you're going down the river. It really is. There were a couple places uh, beneath Wasbar Dam and beneath Chickamauga Dam where we had a mile, mile and a half hour current, but really not much. And for Andreas Spa, that was not a good thing. He, he wanted as much current as possible. The sweep of the mountain downstream, and the Rhine River had that. Uh, he had a good current. The Rhine River only has one obstruction. And that's a natural one, it's Lake Constance, but there are no dams across the line. So it's a different kind of river altogether. So uh, we rely heavily on these navigational charts, such as this one over here on the right. Uh, this is a section of Kentucky Lake, the big lake near the end. And uh, you can see here in the light blue, this is the original channel of the river, 40 feet deep or so. And then the darker blue is on the side. That's the flooded area from Kentucky Lake Dam. And it's an eerie thing when you look at these maps to be floating over old buildings and towns and cemeteries, even though they're right underneath. Uh, but really, the, the river has aspects of both a river and, and just a massive lake. And you can see that right there. So on any given day, this is what the configuration of the team looked like. This splash of water up here that's Andreas Bach swimming. And you see this little green kayak next to him, that's called a pilot boat. And it's there for two reasons. One is safety, because uh, jet skis come around the corner with fast, uh, fast boats. They may not see an individual swimming through the water. So that's 
for that person's safety. The other thing is, uh, Andreas said, you know, when you're swimming like this, open water swimming, you don't really know where you're going. Right? He swims freestyle, so that means he takes a breath, he sees the trees on one side of the river, then he sees the water underneath them, and then he sees the trees on the other side of the river, and takes another breath on the other side. Uh, but you don't really see ahead. If you do look up, he said it's like being in the world's biggest infinity pool. So uh, the other job of that, of that kayak is to, is to give him guidance. So if you can see that kayak out of the periphery of your vision, you just follow it. Okay. This pontoon boat was our science platform. That's where we had students and scientists, all the sampling gear, food, water, okay, all that kind of stuff. And this is how we moved down the river. Andreas swam. 20 miles a day, at an average of 2.33 miles an hour, uh, and we collect the samples as we, as we move on down. So, Tennessee and Alabama in July and August, extremely hot, water temperatures in the upper 80s, uh, and that made it really tough when Andreas he stopped every 30 minutes uh, to stay in the water but to eat and drink something. Uh, and you see he's wearing a black wetsuit there, and why was he doing that? Uh, that's a real sober collector. Because it gives you buoyancy, and it makes you about 10% more efficient as a swimmer if you wear a wetsuit. Does it sound like much? Well, when you're swimming 20 miles a day for 34 days, that adds up. So it's vital to have that. Also, you can see spare skin, so sunburn was a, was a worry. Plus, I've got to say, he's a little creeped out about what might be in the Tennessee River. He used to swim in uh, northern Europe where you don't have snapping turtles and gar and these other prehistoric critters down there. Uh, he was really worried about alligators in Wheeler Lake, too. Uh, not that the West would have anything for that, but uh, he, he was a little creeped out by the potential uh, fauna that he might encounter. So here we are going through downtown Chattanooga, the Tennessee Aquarium. And particularly in big cities and, and, and larger towns, we always made sure that the press was, uh, was there so that we could get on the, the evening news, perhaps, or on the news the next day, and keep in touch with the public along the entire swim so they could you know, really track us and get interested in our progress on a regular basis. And to that end, we also had a GPS tracking device on the pontoon boat that was linked to a Tennis Swim website to our Facebook page. So you can see where we were at any point in time. You can see what our progress was. And that also meant that people can anticipate where we might be at a certain point in time. Uh, and because of that, people were standing on the riverbanks and places waving to us, visiting us in boats the whole time. And that, that made it really nice. Swimming 20 miles a day, taking an occasional water sample. This beautiful intense river is old, uh, and uh, it's nice that people come by. And I have to say that the friendliness, the hospitality of the people we met along the river was surprising to me. I mean, I guess Southern hospitality grew up in Tennessee, but these people on the river were so friendly. Uh, like these folks that came out to visit us here, that uh, they they really try to help us. On our, on our trip through here. So these folks that own Cuba Landing uh, Marina, they let us uh, park our boat at Life Free and Marina, that's a common thing. We got invited to people's homes, they brought us food, they some swimming pools, they jet ski rides. It's a really nice experience, I have to say. Every day at lunch, Andreas liked to get out on land. 
give a little terra firma under him. Uh, if it was a marina around him, that was great, it served food. You get out in his wetsuit, go to the restaurant, get a hamburger, and you go out and swim 10 more miles. Uh, but on this particular day, we were, oh, near Savannah, Tennessee, but away from any marinas. And you want to get out on, on land. And the stream banks were steep and muddy and about 20 feet high. And we finally found one place where we could scramble up. And we got up into the soybean field up here. And lo and behold, the owners, you see here, were there with their pickup trucks on the other way. This is where the hospitality managers were trespassing some of these fields. And so this old, older gentleman here looked at us and said, We hope the swimmers can wait two hours for you. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a relief. Another example of the hospitality, and that the whole thing seemed to be working, right? We were connecting with people. And finally, on day 34, we got to Paducah, the end of Tennessee, where we're used to. The Ohio swimbles over. What about the water quality? What, uh, what did we find there? When you get on the Tennessee River in the summertime, uh, the, the first thing you notice visually is that it seems to be a really clean river. And if you, if you talk to Andreas about swimming in the river, you can always see, you know, past the ends of his fingertips. That's pretty good, you know, in the summer when there's a lot of hollow road and that kind of thing. Uh, and I have to say, never did I see any large pipes disgorging foul-looking or foul-smelling liquid into the tent I didn't see any of that. We never saw that at all. We never saw rafts of, of litter or debris going down the river. So that was quite surprising. Uh, the one visual uh, hint that, that, that there was a problem in one location was here. Uh, on the left, you see this more turbid water? Uh, that's the Flint River that goes by Huntsville, Alabama. It's a tributary to the Tennessee. So it's flowing from the left to the right to the Tennessee. And you can see that there's a pretty sharp divide between the waters of the two rivers. That, that goes on for hundreds of yards downstream before the two really mix. So there's a lot of silt and clay suspended here uh, in the Flint River. And I think I know why that is. Here's a, a Google Earth image, and on the right-hand side, I know it's hard to see, but the Flint River is flowing down here like this, on its way to Tennessee, which is just below the frame here. And what you see here on the left are brand new subdivisions uh, in East Huntsville. And you see, the, you see the brown areas here? Those are areas under construction, so there's all that done is clear the land. And in spite of silt fences and so forth, there's, there's always going to be uh, runoff, especially during storm events. And when we came through here, this area that had been to day before. And silt fences don't hold clay back anyway. Uh, anyway, so the clay made it through and some of the silt in, I'm fairly convinced that the, the turbidity we were seeing is from these, these subdivisions under construction. So, some of the water quality parameters we could get pretty much instantly. That was done with handheld probes like you see on the right. So temperature, pH, dissolved oxygen, conductivity, we could get those things on the spot. Other things took a little longer to analyze. So here was a middle photo from the campsite that we went camping down the river so the guys were swimming. And here's some students, grad students, 
with the nitrates and phosphates in the water. Your samples are collected that day. So we could get some of the data uh, in, a, in a day or two. But the majority of it, pharmaceuticals, pesticides, heavy metals, microplastics, that kind of thing, you take a sample and then save it and send it off to a laboratory, a commercial lab, or in some cases, we took it back to Germany after I stopped it and analyzed the lab in Germany. So it took a while to get all the data back. It took all told, I would say about 10 months after the storm was over to get all the analytical data back to us. So almost a year, a while. So what did we find? Well, again, with that probe that gives you temperature or pH and dissolved oxygen, things look good from a dissolved oxygen standpoint. Usually above five parts per million, and that's when fish are really happy. And there's a, there's a pretty consistent level. It started to drop down to the, the, the lower ends of the, the Tennessee River, but, but by and large, it looked, it looked pretty good. Uh, pH is really high in the Tennessee River. Makes sense, it flows across the whole model limestone, drives the pH up. Okay, so that was not unexpected. Nitrates and phosphates, they were they were in a very good range, acceptable range. Took a lot of those measures. And that was, I guess to me, a little surprising because the watershed is pretty agricultural. And nitrates and phosphates, of course, are used in fertilizers, and so the levels were, were pretty darn good. What about metals? Well, I took a total of 19 samples along the length of the Tennessee River for the analyzed for selected metals that you see here. Some of those metals are a uh, concern in terms of drinking water. So that would be things like lead, mercury, chromium, things like that. They're actually regulated by the EPA. Uh, you only have so much of those things in drinking water. Uh, and what we found was that for all these levels that are regulated, they, they fall below the EPA maximum contaminant levels. Okay, so they're very frequent levels. That didn't surprise me much because I had already done some extensive metal sampling in Tennessee River. So, if the only thing you cared about in drinking water in the Tennessee River, the only thing you cared about was heavy metals, you could drink right out of the river, no problem. It's a level to what? Uh, even below uh, Chattanooga Creek, uh, which goes past some superfine sites with this lead issue. Uh, the levels there in the Tennessee River, even, even the tributary creek, still within the EA NCLs, which is pretty, pretty impressive. It's a functional population. So, look good. Things look good. There's something interesting, though, to note about some of these metals. If you look at sodium, magnesium, and calcium, and this area right here is where the Tennessee River, you see it back here in the back, comes in and meets the Ohio. This is the Ohio River on the left. So some of the Tennessee River flows in right here to the Ohio, some goes around an island here, and then comes in to the Ohio there. But if you look at concentrations of sodium, magnesium, and calcium, these are all in parts per billion, which is the same as micrograms per liter. There's a big difference between the Tennessee River here and the Ohio here. And you, you, you know this is gonna happen because when you come in on the pontoon boat, and you start to see the Ohio, the Ohio looks different. It's turbid. It's, it's really uh, gray looking compared to Tennessee. So you, you know something's uh, different there. When you go out of the Ohio, you put the conductivity probe in, 
conductivity levels go through the roof much higher. That means there's more dissolved, suspended stuff, you don't know what, but there's more stuff in the Ohio and Tennessee. But look at these values. It'd be hard to read. Sodium in Tennessee, 8,000 ppbs. In the Ohio, almost 13,500. Magnesium, 10,800. Here in the Tennessee River, it's 4,500, so twice as high in the Ohio. And then calcium uh, is 14,000 in Tennessee, 34,000 in the Ohio. So it's at least twice as high in Ohio for these three things. But these things won't hurt you, you can drink them. You know, they're not regulated by EPA. But why this difference? Why this difference? It's still striking. You don't know exactly, but I have a hunch. Uh, I, think, I think these are associated with sodium chloride, magnesium chloride, calcium chloride. All three of those are de-icing compounds that are put on roads. And uh, think about, we know what the Tennessee River is, right? Knoxville, well, uh, But the Ohio, it starts up by Pittsburgh River. Makes its way down. So it's going through colder area in the southeast, right? More snow and ice on the roads in the winter, more the icing that goes on. And these compounds, they accumulate in the soil, we know that, and they get flushed out periodically, make their way through the water and down to the river. So I, I think, I'm pretty convinced that at least the majority of the difference here is due to the icing of the roads. Plus, the Ohio is a bigger watershed, so there's more opportunity to put stuff down on the roads. COD, that's chemical oxygen demand in um, milligrams per liter, parts per million. This is basically a measure of how much oxygen you would need in the water to break down all the organic material. So it's another way of getting at the total amount of organic material in the, in the river. You don't want much in there. So on the x-axis here, this is, on this end, the start of the Tennessee River, Knoxville, going downstream, 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 to Paducah right here. And if you look at these levels, they're pretty good, they're pretty low. With a couple of exceptions, I think these aren't so bad in terms of total amount, but there are two spikes here where you got an increase in organic material in the river. And that first one, I think we, we know. Here's the Tennessee River flowing this way. And this is a suburb of Knoxville. It's in South. Western Knoxville. We took the sample with the high uh, value right here. And up here, we didn't know at the time, it's a sewage treatment plant. So the outflow of the plant is right here. So I think the, uh, the chemical oxygen demand is, is up because we're getting sewage outflowing here uh, from that plant. I'm pretty certain about that. The other spike is where the Hiawassee River flows in Tennessee. We have no idea why that. Spike is there. It's kind of interesting. Okay, so now some other kind of sampling. There's Andreas, and you see this thing he's putting on his leg here. It's a this little oval, light-colored patch. Can you see that? This thing. Okay, that's basically it's a piece of plastic that's got a very large surface area. It's highly corrugated, and as we'll find out in a little while, uh, certain chemicals like to stick to plastic, okay? So if any chemicals that are in the water of a certain type brush across this plastic patch while they're swimming, they'll stick on it. And so he would wear this patch all day long while he was swimming. 
then at night put it in a container with preservative, put it on the next day, swim with it all day, and wear it for about seven to ten days, and then we'd switch it out for a new patch. And then we do the analyses to see what adhered to that plastic patch. It doesn't give you uh, quantitative information, it doesn't tell you how much of the chemicals there, it just tells you whether the thing is the chemical is detected or not. So qualitative data. And over here, you can see that there are a whole bunch of things that the, that the sample could detect. And I'll, I'll run you through some of these because some of the things are really pretty interesting. Let's, let's go ahead and take a look. When you look at this sample, you find a whole bunch of PPPs, plant protection products, that's what those are. They're basically uh, pesticides, herbicides. Okay, so you may recognize some of these names. Atrazine is a famous kind of pre-emergent road crop fertilizer. It's used heavily in the southeastern US. And you know, it is a it is a watershed that's that's got a lot of agriculture in it, so it's not unexpected to find that. So you know, look, there are a bunch of funny names here, all these other herbicides, you know, fungicides. Biocides and so forth, but these were all detected by that, that sounding device. So think about that. If you're, if you're a fish swimming around, these, these things brush up against you as a fish, like they brush up against that plastic patch, or like they brush up against Andreas, the swimmer. A number of pharmaceuticals, some anti seizure medications that you see here, like homogene, uh, diabetes medication, like metformin, we detected certain hypertension drugs, erbisartan. And then the synthetic opioids, Tramadol, we detected that as well. I detected corrosion inhibitors, artificial sweeteners, I'll talk about that in just a minute, super close. Other things that were detected by the patch included uh, a number of different flame retardants, uh, a number of PFCs, those are perfluorinated compounds, I'll talk about those in a second, which are kind of important. Uh, and then a bunch of weird household chemicals, preservatives from food and cosmetics, uh, sunscreen lotion additives, uh, and caffeine, which is pretty ubiquitous everywhere. What's interesting is we also took water samples and analyzed for these same chemicals so that we get a quantitative amount. But sometimes, in getting those water samples, we miss the chemicals. But the patch did, because the patch is in the water all day long, you know, every day of the swim. So, we missed a few things with the, the, the grab samples of water, but that makes sense. If you just get a half a liter of water out, you may miss some of these chemicals for the patch dots. The patch dots some more stuff, but here there's some more things. Uh, antipsychotic medications, a bunch of beta blockers, metoprolol, phenolol, I used to take metoprolol. Uh, uh, here's an interesting one, this painkiller, diclofenac. Okay, and I think we made a little bit of a mistake here. What we wanted to do, we did in the beginning, we started the tennis swim, is compare our results to the results of the Rhine River. So we said, I was just going to look at the same stuff we looked through before the Rhine. Makes sense, right? And so the labs in Germany did the analyses that I set up for them. And uh, they said, oh yeah, you're going to find lots of diclofenac. It's a commonly prescribed painkiller, diclofenac. And uh, we found it, but in very, very, very low concentration. You don't know what the concentration with the patch picked that, but we never got it in the grab sample of water. There's not much there. So I started to ask some doctors, pharmacists around, and they said, oh, that's hardly the first round in the United States. It is in Europe. So what should we have done? We should have looked for 
uh, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, we should look for oxycodone, hydrocodone, but we kind of have that. But we should have looked for the painkillers that are actually used here. That was a mistake, but you know, we live and learn. So it's a little surprising to the Europeans that we don't have much to Okay, PSCs, perfluorinated compounds. Uh, these are a bunch of different compounds that fall in this category. And these are compounds that are associated with the manufacturing of Teflon, with metal coating, uh, make textiles stain resistant use uh, PFCs. And the problem with PFCs is that they have been demonstrated to be endocrine disruptors in, in fish and in uh, invertebrates. We don't really know what they do to humans, but we worry about it because of what they do to animals. So this is actually the Rhine River. And here are the concentrations of PFCs, micrograms per liter, as parts per billion. And this is the start of the Rhine, going downstream, downstream to the North Sea. And there are PFCs there, even though most of them have been banned in Europe by now, but they're there. Uh, they're persistent, they don't go away so easily. But look at the levels, 0 0.006 micrograms per liter. The most of them fall under that concentration. Now let's go to the Tennessee River. And this is set up the same way. Micrograms per liter concentration here, the start of the Tennessee, downstream, downstream to Paducah. And we see that they increase as you go downstream. Remember, the Rhine River concentration is 0.006. You fall right in there. So something's going on in the lower Tennessee where you have a lot of PFCs. And that increase right there corresponds to Florence, Muscle Shoals, Alabama area. So, right when you get downstream from there, there's levels of PSCs go pretty dramatically. Now, we said to ourselves at the beginning of this that we were not going to try to link particular pollutants to particular entities, like factories, companies. Okay, that's a, that's a dangerous game. You're just running down the river, grabbing samples here and there on the way down. Uh, so, that was not the intent to, to link them. That the entities to certain kinds of pollutants. But this is a very clear trend that's linked at least to this area. That's, that's reality. Okay, what about sweeteners, artificial sweeteners? Well, we find them in both rivers the Rhine on the left, going downstream here, and the Tennessee on the right, going downstream. Just look at the orange one, that's superlose. That's an artificial sweetener in most diet drinks. And uh, the levels are much higher. The Tennessee than in the Rhine, even though the Rhine's got 10 times more people in it. So we don't know what that means. It may just mean that we drink a heck of a lot more in the way that diet the Europeans maybe yet. But the other thing is that sucralose is used uh, in the manufacture of animal feed, dog food, and other other animals. Makes from one of you dog food, whatever. And we noticed that there were lots and lots of animal food facilities. Uh, along the way, how factors that they made the dog food circle uh, right on the river banks. Is that part of it? Well, maybe. We don't know. But it's an interesting, an interesting high level of sucralose. How many people in here have had an MRI before? Yeah, a lot of you. I've had uh, So maybe you've had an MRI where you were given a dye. It's not really a dye, it's called a dye. A contrast agent. Uh, and it could be a number of things. It could be the 
this metal held together in it, or it could be amidotriazate, or it could be iohexol. Some of these things are given intravenously, the iohexol type orally. It just makes it easier for the, the, the doctor, the radiologist, whatever, to interpret the image. So gadolinium, the metal, it tends to, to, to go to damaged tissue and tumors. And so you, you may have had this in your body. Your body doesn't metabolize gadolinium with these other things. Uh, so when you get out from your MRI, you go to the bathroom, and that gadolinium that was put into you, you know, you urinate, whatever, it comes right back out. It's also not taken out by sewage treatment. So it goes right back into the river. And uh, it's pretty inert material, but um, we found a fair bit of gadolinium in the Tennessee, not as much as uh, they got in the Rhine. But look over here, uh, some of these, the amitriazate and this is in the Tennessee River right here. Uh, the source of the river in Knoxville, downstream to Paducah. You can see some bumps here. That's Knoxville, that's the Knoxville area. That's Chattanooga, that's Huntsville. Okay, and that makes sense. That's where the concentrations of hospitals and imaging centers, right? Where you get it in that. So it's a deep correlation uh, with that. All right, so I would say to this point, the Tennessee looks pretty good, except for PFCs maybe, chlorinated compounds, but we'll issue there. And you get microplastics. Um, Microplastics are pieces of plastic that are less than five millimeters of maximum diameter. They're the two broad groups. The primary microplastics, those that are manufactured to be small pieces of plastic, little beads usually. These were often put into what we call rinse-off cosmetics. So the facial scrubs, toothpaste, because of the abrasive problems. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of other applications as well. Uh, but the majority of microplastics are secondaries, and these are just the breakdown particles of bigger pieces of plastic. So just visualize a plastic bag or a bottle, you know, over time, sunlight breaks it down, abrasion with rocks on the screen floor or whatever, and you get smaller and smaller pieces. Okay, so microplastics are anything less than five millimeters maximum diameter. So we sampled for microplastics in the Tennessee River, and we looked at this size range. 0.025 millimeters up to half a And when you look at results of the microplastics analysis, the size range is absolutely key to consider. Because think about one piece of plastic, it can break into two. And each of those would break into two again. Those would break into two. So when you get to the smaller size ranges, you get more and more and more plastic particles. Okay, so especially that bottom end range is key to consider when comparing one study to the next. So, what did we find? Well, they had already found, of course, microplastic concentrations in the Rhine River in 2014. And they found 200 particles in that size range that I told you about uh, per cubic meter of water. That's a thousand liters. Okay, a cubic meter of water is a thousand liters of water. So, that's what was found. Using the exact same analytical technique, using the Look at the same size range. In Tennessee, we found 60,000 microplastic particles per cubic meter of water. And Andreas was so shocked about it that they ran, I think, twice by the way to make sure they had done it correctly, and they had. 
so people like to compare it to the Yangtze River, where they only find 9,000 particles per cubic meter. But be careful if you look at the size range that Wang and other researchers looked at the Yangtze. They didn't get down to the to the exact same small size range that we did. Had they, their numbers would be higher. Okay, because remember, smaller size ranges translate into greater numbers of particles. So that's important to keep in mind. The other thing is the discharge of both rivers. There's a lot more water in the Yangtze compared to the Tennessee. Okay, so on the balance, the Yangtze's cranking in a whole lot more microplastic than Tennessee into the ocean. But still, you can make this direct comparison between the Rhine and the Tennessee. And that's a shocking difference, especially when there are 10 times as many people living in the Rhine with large rivers in Tennessee. What's going on? Why is there that? Why is there that difference? That's the burning question, right? And why do we worry about microplastics anyway? I mean, I could, I could run into a bunch of plastic for me right now. I could eat it out of the bowl. And, you know, unless there were some additives and some kinds of carbohydrates and things that in there. But aside from those things, that wouldn't, wouldn't affect me at all. You know, just my body would metabolize it, just come out. So, what's the problem with microplastics? Well, the problem is this. Once you put microplastics into the aquatic environment, a river like the Tennessee or the Cumberland, they draw to them and adsorb heavy metals, pesticides, pharmaceuticals. This is the PSGs we talked about, things like that. They want to stick to the surfaces of the microplastics. Yeah, it's called an adsorption. And uh, so if an organism like the American paddlefish consumes this, it can't Paddlefish can't throw this in plankton and microplastic pieces that are floating around. Uh, we don't know really what happens uh, to the chemicals stuck under the microplastics, or what would happen if, if you and I drank microplastic particles in the water that would have been out in the aquatic environment. A lot of us do there drink water from rivers. And do our filtration plants, like a sand filter, do they remove all those microplastics? Probably not. So you're down to the smaller end. Now when you get down to really small, what we call nanoplastics. And my guess is there that not totally filtered out. Take a plastic particle that's been in the river, the chemicals stuck on it, you put it in your body, with the body of an invertebrate, clam, or fish, and it's then all of a sudden a different kind of environment. In your body, the temperature is different from what it was in the river. You've got acids, you've got enzymes. In your gut, do these, do these things strip the chemicals off the microplastic and then they get in your system? We don't know. The, the reality is that there's been not so much work done, even on animals, very little on fish, and most of on invertebrates, and nothing on humans. We don't really know what the effect is on humans. And that's why recently the World Health Organization said that microplastics were not their greatest concern and they probably should not be regulated. And I totally get that because they're dealing with microbes that kill over 4 million people every year. Arsenic poison in Bangladesh and India kills thousands every year. Right? So we're dealing with microplastics that that we're really on the frontier of understanding. We don't really know what they might do. But they're worrisome because we do know, we do know that they attract all these chemicals, chemicals that we uh, don't want in our systems because they're you know, proven to be at this chemicals, endocrine disruptors carcinogenic or, you know, after the liver or whatever. So uh, this is why we worry about microplastics. If you look at the type of plastics, it's also interesting. Right? 
isomer. This is a pretty representative diagram. Oh, and just about half of what we found is PD, this polyethylene. And I'll talk about what these are. The next slice defies polypropylene. Then comes polyamide. Now, where do we take our samples from? The back of the boat, in the, in the upper two feet of the water column in the Tennessee River. There are only two kinds of plastics that float, polyethylene and polypropylene, that have a, a density less than water, everything else is heavier. So, uh, it shouldn't be surprised that we were finding the lightest uh, plastics, polyethylene, greatest numbers. Polyethylene also be, happens to be the most manufactured type of plastic, and then comes polypropylene. Uh, polyethylene is what's used in grocery bags. So your typical Kroger, Walmart bag, that's polyethylene. All the plastic packaging that looks like around our sandwiches today, that's polyethylene. Uh, polypropylene uh, is used to manufacture some clothing and uh, uh, heavy duty furniture, the water bottles, the plastic that all students, college students take classes with these days, that's all uh, polypropylene. Um, polyamide, Toothbrush, bristles, carpet fibers, things like that. Um, and uh, there's a bunch of other plastics that we found here as well. One thing we did not find was PDT, that's polyethylene terephthalate. That's what's used to make soda bottles, soda plastic water bottles, Gatorade bottles. Those are all polyethylene terephthalate. Look at the density, they're pretty heavy, these plastics. Uh, compared to the polyethylene, which is a floating plastic, right? So since we were getting our samples from the upper two feet of the Tennessee River, it makes sense that we didn't find any PET. Okay, where was it? Probably at the bottom of the river. People call this the missing plastic because they know it's got to be there. Uh, and I'll show you why we have that. Uh, but it's hard to detect. Same thing in the ocean. It sinks. And so if it's 5,000 meters down, good luck finding it. That's called the missing plastic. You know it's got to be there. Uh, but, but you can't sample it. So we have to figure out a way to sample the bottom of the, of the Tennessee River coming from the sea. The, the PET is in fact there. It is there. So again, the polyethylene, where's it coming from? All these grocery bags, all that food packaging. Uh, but still, why is it in the water? And Europeans, this is actually a picture from Germany up here, they pack their stuff in plastic too. Why don't they have so much polyethylene? Water. I think this is why. I think because so much of our plastic ends up on the landscape. Uh, this is <laughs> tributary of Tennessee, Third Creek, and Knoxville. 80% of that's drink bottles, PET. This is uh, Chattanooga Creek. About 80% of that is, uh, is drink bottles. Why aren't they sinking? I said it's heavier than water, it's got the caps on it. As long as you got air in there with the cap on, the stuff's not going to sink. As soon as you take the cap off, the water goes down. Okay. So this is why we call this the missing plastic. We see a lot of it going in the river, but you can't find it. It's at the bottom. And here, this is outside of Sewanee, Tennessee, side of the road, common scene, the ditch, plastic bags, plastic bottles. And you know what happens to this stuff? Well. This is all limestone in the background. We know that through most of the Tennessee River's watershed, we've got limestone with caves, right? And these cave systems are full of water, groundwater, and that water flows. It flows ultimately to, to rivers and streams that go to the Tennessee River. 
So if you put the garbage in the landscape, and it's plastic, it stands to reason, it's going to make its way down, either going on the surface through the groundwater, uh, down to the river system, the Tennessee River, included in that. This is a scene that you just don't see in Northern Europe. You know, it's a whole different culture of littering there, or not littering. Uh, in, in Europe, Northern Europe, these people uh, tend to recycle very, very delicious uh, all their plastic material. They don't litter in the landscape. So it, it tends to stay out of the environment. And I'm convinced that that's a big reason why we see these differences in microplastics between the Rhine and the river. It's hard to prove that, but this is at least anecdotal evidence, right? Fairly convinced that that's a big reason. Tennessee's got more than 10,000 caves. So, you know, the whole Tennessee River Valley and watershed is full of karst. It's a karst landscape, you know, the landscape of caves and passageways. Easy trip for the plastic, once it's out of the line, to make its way down to the river system. All of Germany's only got 2,000 caves. Okay, so we have a very uh, karsted environment, so we can tell this part. So, if you do the math, what it all means is that if you look at the size range that we studied, 0.025 to 0.5 millimeters. Look at the microplastics of that size range. It means that every second, 32 million microplastic particles are going from the Tennessee River to the Ohio. Every second. That's a that's a humongous amount of plastic. And of course, that's going to make its way to Mississippi and then the Gulf of Mexico because it gets hung up somewhere in between. So we know that. You know, 9 million tons plus of plastic enters the ocean every year. And uh, this is the June issue of National Geographic. This is a, it looks like an iceberg, but it's a plastic bag. The June 2018 cap. And uh, that was the issue where they quit wrapping back to plastic and started putting it in paper. Mistake. And this is off the coast of Ireland. This is some help to put a lot of. Uh, Plastic that's floating on its natural plastic. But it's on its way to being microplastic. So, what can we do if we wanted to really lower the amount of plastic in the rivers, microplastic? And I think we can. I think we can do it. Because in Europe, they do it. They got so many more people. Okay. Plastic's a great substance. I have nothing against it. We all use it. It's actually environmental in a lot of ways. Think about your car. If, if what's in your car today is made out of plastic, we're metal. Is what it would like to be, or some other material. Your car would be so much heavier, it would burn more fuel, spit out much more CO2. Okay, so it, it can be, you know, life-saving material, environmentally sound material, but you've got to keep it within the loop of use. You've got to not put it out into the environment, obviously. So, uh, to that end, you avoid single-use plastic, and you've seen symbolic gestures of that, right? People not using straws. Straws are a tiny part of the problem. That's a symbolic step, but you know, good. So now Starbucks has got his adult sippy cups, right? And, uh, <laughs> but what else can we do? Perhaps implement a bottle bill. So like Mark Davis is attempting to do the tent can. And get money back for the bottles. In Europe, that's what they did, going to Europe. Uh, in fact, they're so rabid about that that the Frankfurt Airport in Germany, the plastic recycling containers kept this, uh, lot. Otherwise, people take all the plastic bottles out and return them for mine. <laughs> uh, reduce plastic packaging, 
You know, one of my favorite foods is bag of salad, Caesar salad. But you open the first bag, the salad comes out with all this other type of plastic in there. Open it up, and then three more packs of plastic in there. One step of pepper, one step of salad dressing, and one step of crouton, okay? That's just a lot of plastic. Uh, so can we reduce it? Uh, maybe develop alternatives. Uh, I was in a coffee shop the other day. I was here in Nashville someplace. And uh, so instead of the plastic stir stick, uh, it was noodles. I cooked noodles. And, you know, they're only in there for two seconds. They don't get sauce. That works really well. So there are alternatives there. Uh, recycling, clearly, is something we can do better. And, and maybe look at Europe and see how, how they do it. Um, and I want to thank the sponsors of the Tennis Web, uh, especially TDA and Lindbergh's and Liberty Foundations and all these other groups. Uh, when Andreas makes talks here in the United States, he uses the, the German term for fresh, the German term for fresh water is Süßwasser, which means literally translated sweet water. So he keeps talking about sweet water, the audience thinks he's talking about beer the whole time. He's talking about fresh water. But Sweetwater was a sponsor of ours, so it's actually okay. So, what are we doing now after the tennis swim? Well, we have a paper that's being in the process of being published, and Bob has written the first textbook on microplastics, meatball uh, plastic, it's in German. And so I'm going to translate it, and my contract says I have to have it done by end of April 